This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. New Hampshire presidential primary voting is underway. We'll hear from Republican candidates Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, who stopped by polling sites in the state. And from Boston Globe political reporter James Pindle on the state of the race. Also, Democratic presidential candidates Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson, who are challenging President Joe Biden and choosing to take part in the New Hampshire primary, even though it is not sanctioned by the Democratic National Committee. In Washington, U.S. Senate leaders are talking more about how close a bipartisan U.S. border security deal is that can be added to, as Republicans have required, the president's national security supplemental spending request for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin makes his first public appearance since being released from the hospital after he experienced complications from prostate cancer treatment. He joined a meeting virtually from home to the group of nations supporting Ukraine militarily and economically. And U.S. and European forces strike Houthi militants in Yemen again as the militants vow not to stop attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. A story from CNN, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley insisted on Tuesday morning that she would remain in the race beyond New Hampshire while not laying out any specific expectations for her performance in the first in the nation primary. Nikki Haley spoke to reporters outside a polling station in Hampton, New Hampshire. You also hear from New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who is standing beside her. Defining what a strong showing here in New Hampshire looks like. Why won't you define what it looks like? And also, uh, former President Trump last night said you'll probably drop out today. What's your response to that? I don't do what he tells me to do. I've never done what he tells me to do. Um, look, I mean, I think I don't strong. I've always said we'll know strong when the numbers come in. It's not like a certain number. I don't go there and say, oh, I have to have this number. I have to have that number. What I've always had in my mind is I want to be stronger than Iowa. And then South Carolina, I want to be stronger. Let's see what that looks like. Y'all will all be talking about it. So you can decide later whether that's strong or not. But that's what we're going to be watching for. If Trump beats you by double digits here in New Hampshire, do you think that your campaign has a future? You know, when we come in and we start the day and there were 13, 14 candidates in this race, I didn't get here because of luck. I get, got here because I outworked and outsmarted all the rest of those fellas. So I'm running against Donald Trump, and I'm not going to talk about an obituary just because y'all think we have to talk about it. I'm going to talk about running the tape and saving this country. I think we have to do it. I'm a fighter. I work hard, and I do it because I love this country. And we're going to go and fight until the very last poll closes, and then we're headed to my sweet state of South Carolina, and we're going to make the case there as well. And if I may. Six weeks ago, none of you predicted Nikki Haley was going to be the only candidate standing. She's already exceeded expectations, already had a strong showing here. The sky's the limit. And to go into her home state with all that momentum, uh, that's just an amazing opportunity. Governor, Governor you've been Haley. ramping up your attacks on Donald Trump. Do you think he is mentally fit to hold the presidency? I think he's mentally fit. The problem is, do you want two 80-year-olds running for president? I mean, seriously, 
in the military, you have to retire at 65. You know, you don't have surgeons doing surgery at 80. There's multiple things. It's just a fact that people start to decline. And when you've got a country in disarray and a world on fire the way we do, you need someone at the top of their game that can put in eight years that can go and get things back on track. That's what this is about, is making sure that we have the best person, not settling for the fact that, you know, two 80-year-olds running for president, but more than that, 70% of Americans have said they don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. So let's give them a choice. Let's give them some options. This is about giving them a new generational leader that's going to secure our border, that's going to get our economy back on track, that's going to get back to the basics in education, that's going to bring law and order back to our country, but it's also going to deal with these wars around the world so that America is safe and we're preventing war from going further. Republican presidential candidate and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in Hampton, New Hampshire this morning at a polling place in this first in the nation presidential primary day. You also heard from New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican, and also standing beside her, Don Bolduc, retired Army Brigadier General and 2022 Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in New Hampshire. He lost that race to incumbent Democrat Maggie Hassan. Republican presidential candidate and former President Donald Trump posting on Truth Social today. The level of excitement and enthusiasm in New Hampshire is incredible. They want strong borders, a great economy with no inflation, low taxes and regulations, a powerful military, energy independence, uh, and just plain common sense. We will make America great again. Donald Trump stopped by a polling place today in Londonderry, New Hampshire, and also spoke with reporters. Are you feeling confident, though? I mean, you have a big, you have a big crowd here. Are you pretty confident here? I'm very confident. I mean, this is it. Look, this is, we just stopped here. We stopped at a polling site. We picked it at random. We may stop at one more. And uh, nobody knew we were coming. This is pretty amazing. Mr. President, is President have you heard that she's staying in through Super Tuesday? I don't care. Is she a threat to you? No, no. She, and I don't care if she stays in. Let her do whatever she wants. It doesn't matter. I can just say that... There's never been a movement like this. Make America great again. In the history of our country, I just stop here and I figured I'd see three or four people and maybe walk inside and you see a crowd like this. And this is this we is organic. You. This is organic. How are you feeling? She wanted a two-person race. Would you consider DeSantis yet? Yeah, I don't want to comment on that. But, Would you consider DeSantis uh, He endorsed me. Would I consider who? Would you ever consider DeSantis? I just can't comment on that. Nikki Haley wanted it to be a two-person race, right? I mean, she got that. Do you think it's going to go in her favor at all? I think it hurts her, actually. I think it's going to hurt her. Uh, Probably have a big loss today, but who knows? But, you know, in uh, the next state is Nevada, where I have 100%, because they all pulled out when they looked at the polling. So I have 100%, a lot of delegates, big state. And then I go to South Carolina, and I'm beating her by 60 points. So uh, I just don't know. I mean, that's up to her. I'm not, I would never ask anybody to pull out. I didn't ask Ron to pull out. I didn't ask Vivek to pull out. Nobody. But we have great support, and most of the people that pulled out have already supported me. So it's actually quite nice. But I'm very honored by this. You know, we expected to come here, and who would think you'd have a crowd like this? This is... Thank you, everybody. President, President Trump, what, President Trump, what's your message? What's your message to the American people on the injustice that you're experiencing and the big concern that the election they, they try to steal it again in 2024? How can well, people we're going to be watching that? very closely. I very, I very much appreciate that question because it's a very important question, more important than most people would understand. 
Uh, we have to make sure we have honest, fair and free elections and strong borders. If we don't have borders and elections, we don't have a country. And you see what's going on with the border. There's never been anything like it on the border. Millions and millions of people are pouring into our country illegally. And many come from prisons. They come from jails. Uh, they're terrorists. Uh, nobody's ever seen it. They come from, by the way, I, I saw a report this morning. They're coming in from mental institutions all over the world. They're pouring in, and it makes sense. Why would a, somebody running a country where it costs so much money, why would they keep the people? They're dumping them into our country. Mental institutions, jails and prisons, they're coming into our country, and a lot of terrorists are coming in. This is really bad. Donald Trump, Republican presidential candidate and former president at a polling place in Londonderry, New Hampshire, today. From USA Today, this story, the detente between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who dropped out of the race two days ago and endorsed Trump, might not last very long. DeSantis has threatened to veto any effort by Florida lawmakers to have the state bankroll Trump's legal bills. On the social media site X, formerly Twitter, DeSantis reposted a Politico story headlined, Some Florida Republicans Want Taxpayers to Pay Trump's Legal Bills. DeSantis commented, but not the Florida Republican who wields the veto pen. That was from USA Today. C-SPAN spoke this morning with James Pindell, Boston Globe political reporter, about what to expect in tonight's New Hampshire Republican presidential primary, the two frontrunners, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. You write that uh, to pull off a victory that Nikki Haley today in the Republican primary, of course, would need uh, a McCain-like performance. What does that mean? Well, look, the only sort of historical parallel to what we've seen in 2024, on the Republican side anyway, with a dominant frontrunner, was George W. Bush in 2000. Obviously, at the time, the Texas governor, son of a president, he was winning. He just won the Iowa caucuses pretty handily. He was winning in every early primary state. If you looked at the polls, dominant frontrunner nationwide. And then along came John McCain in New Hampshire. Polls here showed him also down uh, to George W. Bush. Uh, but <clears throat> John McCain pulled off a stunning 18-point win. It's one of those uh, amazing New Hampshire primary uh, lore stories. But he did it basically if you want to look at two or three different metrics. One, with a deep support of these independent voters we've been talking about all morning. Uh, he had a humongous gap over George W. Bush on that. Nikki Haley, meanwhile, has a much smaller uh, lead among independent voters. Uh, second, uh, we don't talk about this enough because we always say, oh, John McCain and independent voters in New Hampshire, particularly in that election. But he actually also won conservatives uh, in that election. And Nikki Haley, this is where she's getting absolutely smoked by almost 50 points uh, among conservatives. And that's going to be a problem for her going forward. And then I would say, lastly, the third metric, which is harder to define, but John McCain, you know, did 114 town halls in, I think, 69 days. Nikki Haley has been doing a lot of retail stops lately. She'll, what I mean by that is she'll pop in a bar, she'll pop in a restaurant, but she'll only hold one rally, and she won't even take questions. New Hampshire loves the idea of uh, going for the underdog who's really fighting for the vote. You see that not just for president, but you see that all up and down the ballot in this swing state in elections for state senate or anything else. And there's been a general impression that she has not been fighting for it enough. I mean, look, her closing rally uh, last night was in Salem, New Hampshire, a deeply Republican vote-rich town on the border of Massachusetts. Uh, it lasted 34 minutes. 
this is not exactly the tradition of an underdog who is going to fight for every last vote. So is, she is not doing the McCain tradition that he did, and she's not getting it in the numbers. That's why it looks like she's set up for a bad night. But, you know, John, New Hampshire surprises us again and again. Um, when we talked in 2008, it's embarrassing if you want to go to the C-SPAN archive. I was talking about how it looked like Barack Obama with a double-digit lead was probably going to win the New Hampshire primary. And we all remember that shocking night when Hillary Clinton was the one who ended up pulling it off. James Pindle, Boston Globe political reporter on C-SPAN's Washington Journal program this morning. We also asked him how soon we could see results out of New Hampshire tonight. Where are you going to be watching results tonight? How do you watch the results if there is uh, an upset by Nikki Haley, how early do you expect we'll know and where should we look? Oh, great questions. Uh, you know what's interesting? The polls close either at 7 or 8 o'clock. I think something probably like 90% of polls in the state close at 7. Uh, and it closed in the largest city in where we're at right now in Manchester at 7 o'clock. And they're really quick at turning around those results. So among the first results you'll get is from Manchester, which is kind of a swing uh, city uh, in terms of uh, uh, politics here in New Hampshire. So I think we're going to have a pretty good idea within 45 minutes whether or not Nikki Haley has something going on. Of course, all the major organizations called the Iowa caucuses within 31 minutes. Um, I'm not sure it will be that fast, uh, but it, it will be pretty quick. Um, and uh, what is going to be tougher is that about half, well, half of the state lives in two counties in the Boston suburbs. Uh, one of the county is here in Manchester, and the one is uh, a little closer towards the ocean. Uh, those counties will be, they, they have generally open later until like 8 o'clock, so we'll get a more richer picture uh, later in the evening. But this will be pretty fast. This will, we'll pretty much know the winner, I, I think, uh, by, by 11 o'clock, if not a much, much earlier. And are you going to be watching from the Boston Globe, or where are you going to be tonight? I'm going to be on TV a lot tonight, <laughs> to be honest with you, on MSNBC. Uh, but we have a bunch of reporters, the, the Globe does. We're the largest paper uh, by circulation in the state. And I think we have, I mean, I don't even remember how many reporters we have. But I'll be watching, like most people, uh, on TV and watching uh, the uh, results come in from the Associated Press and the Secretary of State. James Pindle, Boston Globe political reporter, part of C-SPAN's interview on this morning's Washington Journal. And C-SPAN's coverage will begin at 8 p.m. Eastern tonight. We'll have all the candidate speeches, the victory and concession speeches, and all the results as well out of New Hampshire. On the Democratic side, New Hampshire President Joe Biden, who is running for re-election this year, will not be on the New Hampshire primary ballot both he and then the Democratic National Committee chose South Carolina's primary to be first. But there is an active effort in New Hampshire for a write-in campaign for Joe Biden. The White House Press Secretary, Queen Jean-Pierre, asked about the president's plans tonight at her news conference at the White House. It's, uh, election day, uh, primary election day in New Hampshire. The president's name is not on the ballot, but there, uh, many of his supporters are trying to write his name in onto that ballot there. Without speaking to 2024 at all, how does the president plan to spend this evening? Does he plan to watch those uh, those results? How does he plan to monitor uh, uh, the outcome? So I appreciate the question. So look, as you know, the president uh, is going to be heading out in a couple of hours uh, to head to Virginia. He's going to be doing a, a dual, uh, obviously a, a dual event with the vice president. Can't go 
too much further into that, but obviously you all know he's go they're going to be speaking about uh, reproductive health care, the importance of that. Yesterday would have been the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court overturned Roe, and, and we have seen the devastating effects that uh, that uh, overturning of Roe have had across the country with women uh, obviously not being able to, many of them not being able to uh, make decisions on their own health care. So you'll hear from the vice president, obviously, you'll hear from the president, uh, so that's what he's going to be doing uh, later on today. I have not spoken to him on how he's going to be uh, uh, taking in the results uh, tonight, uh, so I don't have anything specific uh, to share on, on how that's going to um, uh, how the president's going to be spending his evening, uh, but certainly he is uh, always, uh, certainly uh, always focused on the American people, and that mu that much I can uh, promise. Concerns that that he might lose that writing game. <laughs> I think the president's concern right now is making sure that we continue to deliver for the American people. That's his focus. The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre taking reporters' questions in the White House briefing room. Congressman Dean Phillips, Democrat from Minnesota, presidential candidate who is on the New Hampshire primary ballot today, was out this morning shaking hands with voters heading to the polls in Manchester, New Hampshire. He also did an interview with CNN. The fact is we have a duopoly, a two-party system that is literally working against voters and voters who don't want to show up and vote in primaries and then get frustrated by the choices we have in November. That's part of the problem. We have a crisis of participation. And I got to tell you guys, I went to a Donald Trump rally a couple nights ago. Never been to one. Uh, I had an event across the street. I saw the line of people waiting in the cold for hours. And I thought, what the heck? You know, I'm going to be a leader who actually invites people, doesn't condemn them. Met probably 50 Trump people waiting in line. Every single one of them, thoughtful, hospitable, friendly. All of them so frustrated that they feel nobody's listening to them but Donald Trump. A diverse crowd, people who had never been to a Trump event before. My party is completely delusional right now. And somebody had to wake us up. And if that's my job, so be it. You would rather, though, have Biden in the White House again than Trump in the White House, yes? Of course. Okay, so Absolutely. do you think that this bid, what you've done, has made President Biden stronger? Because that was one of your goals. If it's not going to be you, make him stronger. Have you succeeded well, in that? Well, if he would come out and debate and maybe meet voters and actually start showing up, I'm trying to extend an invitation to the president to get in the game because if you want to be the president again, the only way to even possibly win is to get out here, right, listen so to voters. Is, do you think your effort made him stronger? I'm giving or him. Or weaker? If, if I did nothing, if nobody entered this race, we've turned, the Democrats here, Poppy, have turned over hundreds of hours of primetime TV to the GOP. CNN, you guys, doing one-hour town halls with every single GOP candidate. Every bit of coverage, the GOP, because they've got a competitive race. If Democrats had a competitive race right now, which I'm trying to create, we would have energy. If you had been to my events the last three days, you'd see young people carrying signs, rah, rah. We're trying to get something going. The president is doing nothing. And if he's not going to debate, he's not going to answer questions. How many interviews has he done? He's not doing town halls. He's not showing up. So yes, I'm trying to do him a favor to show up. And if he does, and he does really well in the primaries, and suddenly his numbers rise and he can beat Donald Trump, my goodness, I'd get behind him in a heartbeat. But get in the game. Congressman Dean Phillips, Democrat from Minnesota, presidential candidate. An interview on CNN this morning on this day of the New Hampshire presidential primary. Another Democratic candidate on that ballot in New Hampshire, Marianne Williamson, an author, posting on X an interview she did today with Democracy Now! and adding, we should take our cue from the people, not from the DNC. Here's a few minutes of that interview. 
You often invoke the idea of traditional values in your speeches. Uh, uh, could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by those traditional values? Well, I think that there's common sense involved in our trying to be better people. I think no matter whether someone is approaching this from a religious perspective or a secular perspective, we all know that if you try to be a person of integrity, of generosity, of forgiveness, owning your own mistakes, for forgiving other people for theirs, your life works better. And I think that those same values and those same considerations, those same reflections on what it means to be good should apply to public policy as much as it applies to our personal behavior. Our public policy is guided by an essentially bankrupt on a moral level economic paradigm. There's no sense of, of, of ethics. There's no sense of owing anything to anyone. It's all fiduciary responsibility to the stockholder. And that has been going on for 50 years now. And it has devastated this country. It has, devast it has completely hollowed out our middle class. It has led to a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. If all you care about is stockholder value, at the expense of every other stakeholder's interest, at the expense of the workers, uh, at the expense of the community, at the expense of the environment. What happens? What happens is what has happened to this country, where a majority of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. A majority of Americans cannot absorb a $500 unexpected expenditure. And now 39% of Americans claim that they regularly skip meals in order to pay their rent. This is intolerable. It is unacceptable. And we need a president who will say so. Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson, an interview on Democracy Now!, today on this New Hampshire presidential primary day. This is Washington Today. The first votes in the New Hampshire primary were in the small town of Dixville Notch just after midnight, carrying on a long tradition. There are four registered Republican voters and two independents that took part, and since they are the entire electorate in the town, state law allows the polls to close and the results to be announced. And that result was all six votes were for Republican candidate Nikki Haley. One of the voters, Les Otten, who owns the Balsam Resort, the polling place, spoke to the Elon, Elon News Network from Elon University. Well, it's an important part of the culture and the history of the town. Since 1960, every primary, every presidential election, we've turned out 100% of our voters to vote at midnight. So think about it, from 1960 to 24, 64 years, not one voter didn't answer the bell. It's pretty impressive. We're, I think we're very serious about what we do, and it's important to show that democracy in action is alive and well in Dixville. And so is it typically a, like tonight, 100% for one candidate, or is this a little bit of an No, outcome? I was really quite surprised. Um, there are a couple people that are strong independents that generally take uh, Democratic ballots, and also a couple Republicans that generally are very, very conservative, and I would have thought might have gone the other way. But uh, if I can read the room um, bluntly um, and, and uh, not meaning to misspeak, I think everybody just said tonight that they're tired of listening to the hysteria and the bull. Les Otten in Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, just after midnight on presidential primary day. He mentioned that they started this tradition in 1960. A CNN story has this paragraph while the neighboring cities of Hart's location in Millsfield began midnight voting earlier than that. They haven't participated continuously and aren't conducting midnight voting this year. And a fictionalized version of The Three Neighbors was featured in an episode of Aaron Sorkin's West Wing, dubbed Hartsfield's 
landing. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked by a reporter today how his government is preparing for a possible second Donald Trump U.S. presidency. The Prime Minister was at a cabinet retreat in Montreal and included a briefing by Canada's ambassador to the United States. One of the really important things for any Canadian government is to continue to work constructively uh, with uh, whatever American uh, administration is in place. Uh, There's no question that uh, we made it through the challenges uh, represented by the Trump administration uh, seven years ago uh, for four years where we put forward the fact that Canada and the U.S. do best when we do it together, when we're well integrated, when we uh, recognize the prosperity that's created on both sides of the border. Uh, That's going to continue to be our approach. Obviously, uh, Mr. Trump uh, represents a certain amount of of unpredictability, uh, but uh, we uh, will make sure we're pulling together and preparing for whatever eventuality. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at a news conference at a government retreat in Montreal today. On Wall Street, the Dow down 96, NASDAQ up 65, S&P up 14. An update from the U.S. Senate. Today, they confirmed three of President Biden's nominees to the Amtrak Board of Directors for five-year terms. The current chair, Anthony Kosha, Chris Coos, the mayor of Normal, Illinois, and Joel Zabat, former Transportation Department official. Washington Today continues in a minute. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. Story from Roll Call. A dispute over humanitarian aid for Gaza and the West Bank has become the latest snag in in efforts to reach a bipartisan deal on a war funding and border security package. Senate Democrats have long pushed for humanitarian aid to Palestinian civilians as an integral part of a national security package, and it was included in the Senate's $110.5 billion bill that stalled last month. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, said Tuesday that a deal must include humanitarian aid for the Palestinians in Gaza and humanitarian aid to other places around the world. But the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, pushed back against Gaza aid, saying the Palestinians had no reliable governing entity that could be trusted with it. Also from this roll call article, meanwhile, appropriators are wrestling with how to handle the border funding package that has been the chief holdup. The initial supplemental had $10.7 billion for border management, which GOP critics said 
was to tilted toward services for migrants rather than border enforcement. A lead negotiator, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, said Tuesday that most of the border issues have been resolved, but the bill isn't yet ready. That was all from roll call. President Biden's request for national security spending also had aid for Israel and for Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Senator Murphy joined Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer at the regular Tuesday news conference on Capitol Hill. Senator Murphy begins talking about Ukraine and about U.S. border security. We've gotten to the point where the crisis for Ukraine is not theoretical, it's not prospective, it is here and now. Reports suggest that on some days, Ukraine is firing one quarter to one half the number of rounds that the Russian military is. That is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for Kyiv to be a Russian city sometimes soon. The whole world is watching and asking a simple question. Does the United States stand up for its friends? Does the United States stand up for democracy? Does the United States stand up for the preservation of the post-World War II order? Or do we turn our back on our friends, on democracy, and on international norms? The time to act on the supplemental is now. We have been at these negotiations for four months. We are at the finish line. We still have a handful of issues to resolve, but there is no reason for us to wait weeks to get this bill on the floor. And so I am hopeful that our Republican colleagues will work with us to wrap up the supplemental, both the policy changes and the funding necessary to effectuate the policy changes in the next few days so that we can answer the call for Ukraine. Questions? Wait, let me get if I try to get you. Some people I've never called on before I call on the usual suspects. How much time should members expect to review the text when it comes out? And will you allow amendment votes on this? Okay, on the review the text, uh, we will give members time to review the text uh, before we go to the floor, that's for sure. And as for amendments and how to deal with the floor, Leader McConnell and I'll have to work this work that out once we've come to an agreement. Yes, done. yes, ma'am. Is, is the amount of money for Ukraine in the national security supplemental, the amount that the president requested, is that up for negotiation? Look, one of the things we have to discuss is the fi- you know the appropriations process because there will be a need for new money and. To, you know, we're all discussing how much is there. There are some disagreements. We're trying to come to an agreement. Given that House Republicans have already indicated, many of them, that they won't accept any compromise and that Speaker Johnson is facing pressure from Trump to not accept anything below a, beneath the perfect deal, why not include him in the negotiations now? Get a, get a buy-in from him now before you cut a deal here. Uh, well, Speaker Johnson at the moment says the only way he's going to pass a bill is H.R. 2. As I've said to him repeatedly and publicly till I'm blue in the face, you can't do this unless it's bipartisan. And that's not a bipartisan solution. Senator McConnell and I both believe that the Senate moving first with a hopefully as good a margin as we can get will then um, help us prevail upon the House to do something bipartisan as well. Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, majority leader at a news conference today. You also heard from Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, the lead Senate Democratic negotiator when it comes to U.S. border security. 
expected, if a deal is reached, be part of this national security supplemental spending package from the president, which has aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, also at a Republican leadership news conference today, was asked about all these issues. With election year politics heating up, at what point does this Ukraine border package have to get done before it gets subsumed by election year politicking? Uh, months ago. <laughs> I, I, uh, obviously, I think you already know how strongly I feel about the international challenges that we have and our need to address them. I also feel that way about our southern border. We are working hard, continuously, to try to get a solution on the border part of it. Um, I think this is the ideal time to do it. I think all of you know the politics around here. If this were not divided government, we wouldn't have an opportunity to do anything about the border. In fact, I don't think we'd get 60 votes for any border plan if we had a fully Republican government. So this is a unique opportunity where divided government has given us an opportunity to get an outcome. Virtually all of my members have said to their constituents for a long time, we need to fix the border. This administration is not going to do it unless we force them to, and we're going to continue to press to try to get an outcome that we can put on the floor, that the majority leader can put on the floor in connection with all of these other uh, uh, problems that need to, to be addressed by the number one country in the world uh, who elects its own leaderships. Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, the minority leader at a news conference. And John Bresnahan, the co-founder of Punchbowl News, posting today that Senator James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma, lead Senate Republican on border security foreign aid talks, told Senate Republicans no border security bill expected this week. From the Times of Israel, Hamas has rejected Israel's proposal for a two-month ceasefire during which the terror group would release Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian security prisoners, said a senior Egyptian official on Tuesday, speaking to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity. The official said that Hamas leaders have also refused to leave Gaza and are demanding that Israel fully withdraw from the territory and allow Palestinians to return to their homes. Israel did not confirm the report. That was from the Times of Israel. At the White House, spokesperson for the National Security Council, John Kirby, asked for the Biden administration's reaction to Israel's proposal. There's a report that the Israelis have presented a new ceasefire, a temporary uh, ceasefire for a hostage deal, um, a two-month pause to release all the hostages and the advice of of, 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 of of civilians and soldiers. Um, can you confirm that? Is the U.S. engaged? Is, as Brett's in the region right now, is he trying to actively drum, drum up support for, for that? framework of a, of a deal? Yeah, I'm not able to confirm those specific reports uh, that you're uh, that you're talking about in the press. Um, Brett is in the region. Uh, he was in Cairo today, as a matter of fact, and he'll have other stops along the way. Certainly one of the things he's in the region talking about is the potential for another hostage deal, which would require a humanitarian pause of some length uh, to, to get that done. And that's definitely on the agenda. He'll also be talking about a range of other issues, including humanitarian assistance, including um, getting assessment of uh, Israeli Defense Force operations and the protection of civilian life. I mean, there's a lot on his agenda. But I can't confirm these report reports that 
those are the parameters of a deal that's being discussed. The last thing I'll leave you with is that, the, the, as I've said before, the discussions are sober and serious. Uh, again, I don't want to get ahead of where we are or, or give you, a, uh, I can't give you odds on, on, on if and when we'll be able to get there, but the conversations are very sober and serious about trying to get another hostage deal in place. Sorry, just that, that where the, the holdup is, and this seems to be a, a far more uh, you know, significant offer on the part of the Israelis and we have seen from them that yeah. the public messaging. Is, is Hamas the, the, the real holdup here? I, I, uh, I don't know that, you know, it's time now to be talking about holdups. I mean, these are, these are ongoing discussions. I wouldn't even class, classify them as negotiations quite at this point, but ongoing discussions with counterparts about what's in, the, what's in the realm of the possible here to get these hostages out and how long would that last, the pause itself, and what would that mean for humanitarian aid? There's a lot of components here. And, and so I wouldn't describe it as us running up against some kind of obstacle here or a, or a stop um, or a hard spot. We're, uh, we're just having these active conversations and hopefully they'll bear fruit. John Kirby is Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council at today's White House News Conference. He mentioned Brett McGurk, that is the Deputy Assistant to President Biden and National Security Council Coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. The U.S. and the United Kingdom, writes BBC News, have conducted a fresh series of joint airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. Pentagon said Monday strikes hit eight targets, including an underground storage site and Houthi missile and surveillance capability. The Iran-backed Houthis have been targeting ships they say are linked to Israel and the West that travel through the important Red Sea trade route. The U.S. and U.K. said they were trying to protect the free flow of commerce. Reporting from BBC News, more on this from today's Pentagon briefing with the Press Secretary Pat Ryder. As you heard us announce last night in a joint statement, the U.S. and U.K., with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands, conducted strikes yesterday against eight Houthi targets in Yemen in response to the Iranian regime-backed Houthis' continued attacks against international and commercial shipping as well as naval vessels transiting the Red Sea. These strikes were precise, proportionate, and intended to further disrupt and degrade the capabilities the Houthis have been using to threaten global trade and the lives of innocent mariners. Targets included a Houthi underground storage site and locations associated with the Houthis' missile and air surveillance capabilities. Of note, shortly after taking these strikes, an additional Houthi target was struck by the U.S. in self-defense, destroying an anti-ship cruise missile that was prepared to launch and which presented an imminent threat to vessels operating in the region. Again, our aim remains to de-escalate tensions and restore stability in the Red Sea. But as our joint statement yesterday emphasized, we will not hesitate to defend the lives and the free flow of commerce in one of the world's most critical waterways in the face of continued threats. The Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, also Air Force Brigadier General, at his news conference at the Pentagon. The Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made his first public appearance today since being released from the hospital. He was there due to complications from prostate cancer treatment. A Reuters article has this line, Secretary Austin's failure to tell President Joe Biden he was hospitalized drew criticism from lawmakers and caught the White House by surprise. Secretary Austin today spoke to a meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. That's the more than 50 nations that have been supporting Ukraine in its war with Russia. Secretary spoke virtually from his home. Good day, everyone. Uh, Thanks for working across time zones uh, to join us for the 18th meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. We're eager to enter this new year with new energy, and we're all here to reaffirm our support for a free, secure, and sovereign Ukraine. 
and to ensure that we continue to get Ukraine the capabilities that it needs for the winter and beyond. Ukraine is not alone. Around the world, Ukraine's friends have stepped up to help Ukraine's brave troops resist Putin's aggression. And we formed an historic international coalition rooted in shared interests and common principles. And the United States remains determined to support Ukraine in its fight for freedom. I'm especially glad that we're joined today by my friend, Ukrainian Defense Minister Umerov. Rustem, we look forward to hearing your report from the battlefield. Ukraine's fight is important for all of our countries. Ukraine's incredibly brave troops are continuing their battle against the Kremlin's invaders, against the vast front line in Ukraine's east and south in bitter winter weather. And Ukraine's defenders continue to inflict significant losses on the Kremlin's forces. Putin continues to sacrifice staggering numbers of Russian troops in his rash and reckless war of choice. And Putin hopes that missiles and drones will demoralize the Ukrainian people and break the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian military. So I urge this group to dig deep, to provide Ukraine with more life-saving ground-based air defense systems and interceptors. And Ukraine has answered Putin's cruelty with courage and defiance. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at a virtual meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, the nation's supporting Ukraine in its war against Russia, the first public appearance by Secretary Austin since he was released from the hospital. Story from CNN, the Turkish parliament voted Tuesday to approve Sweden's NATO membership bid, bringing the Nordic country one step closer to joining the military alliance after months of delays. From Reuters, atomic scientists on Tuesday kept their doomsday clock set as close to midnight as ever before, citing Russia's actions on nuclear weapons amid its invasion of Ukraine, nuclear-armed Israel's Gaza war, and worsening climate change as factors driving the risk of global catastrophe. The bulletin of the atomic scientists, as it did last year, set the clock at 90 seconds to midnight, the theoretical point of annihilation. Scientists set the clock based on existential risks to Earth and its people, nuclear threat, climate change, and disruptive technology such as artificial intelligence and new biotechnology. That was from the Reuters article. The president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Rachel Bronson, made the announcement online. In 2023, trends continue to point ominously towards global catastrophe. The war in Ukraine poses an ever-present risk of nuclear escalation, and the October 7 attack in Israel and war in Gaza provides further illustration of the horrors of modern war, even without nuclear escalation. The countries with nuclear weapons are engaged in modernization programs that threaten to create a new nuclear arms race. Earth experienced its hottest year on record, and massive floods, fires, and other climate-related disasters have taken root. And lack of action on climate change threatens billions of lives and livelihoods. Biological research aimed at preventing future pandemics has proven useful, but also presents the risk of causing one. And recent advances in artificial intelligence raise a variety of questions about how to control a technology that could improve or threaten civilization in countless ways. Last year, we expressed amplified concern by moving the clock to 90 seconds to midnight, 
the closest to global catastrophe it has ever been. The risks of last year continue with unabated ferocity and continue to shape this year. Today, we once again set the doomsday clock to express a continuing and unprecedented level of risk. It is 90 seconds to midnight. Rachel Bronson, president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, in an online announcement about this year's setting of the group's doomsday clock. The Wikipedia entry for the clock reads that the clock's original setting in 1947 was seven minutes to midnight. It has since been set backward eight times and forward 17 times. The farthest time from midnight was 17 minutes in 1991. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free. And get the stories making headlines sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.